text this morning is from the book of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Now you need to put a the right in front of that word hope because there's a definite article in the Greek New Testament that makes that impact this passage. Um, proven character, this hope, the hope. And the hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would, e would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now, I have learned something um, over the years, or I, I guess you could say I am still learning a couple of things. One is that you never get all you hope to get in life. You never achieve all you hope to achieve. And the second thing that I am learning is that sometimes when you get what you hope to get, it's never as great as you anticipated it would be. I want you to picture this, yourself this morning climbing the mountain and you're with this large group of people and everybody's excited because you're going to the top. There's anticipation and excitement and happiness on every face as you make your way to the top of the mountain. Halfway up, you decided you decide to rest for a while, a kind of little wayside station. And you see another group of people coming down from the top. They've been to the top. And as they come by you, their faces are empty and sad and disappointed. And you know for the first time that those people have made it to the top and found nothing there. The only thing that is worse than getting what you hope to get is to get what you hope for and find it disappointing. 
And it's the curse of life that so often we get what we hope to achieve and find that it's empty and, and disappointing. Sometimes the anticipation of something is greater than the possession. And that's why this verse is so encouraging when the Apostle Paul says that this hope, this particular hope, will never let you down will never disappoint you. And he's saying this, that you can put your hope in God and that hope will never make you ashamed, will never disappoint you, will never let you down. Now the logical question is, how can I be assured that somewhere down the line God won't let me down someday? I mean, pastors have, my spouse has, my friends have, how can I know that somewhere down the line God will not disappoint me or let me down? Well, he says the reason you can know that that will never happen is because the love of God is poured out. You can rest your confidence on the love of God and, and know that because God loves you that He'll never disappoint you. He'll never let you down. By the way, the word hope has degenerated a great deal in our time. It's lost a lot in the translation. When we see the word hope, we think of, uh, you know, it has a great big uncertainty about it. There's a question mark on it. There's a lot of maybes involved in it. Well, I hope this turns out like this. There's a real question there. But the New Testament word for hope is the word that means confident assurance. It's the absolute unquestioned assurance. And he's saying that you can put your confidence in God and know that He'll never let you down. And the foundation of that confidence is that God loves you. Now the second logical question that comes to mind is, well, how, do I, how can I know that God loves me? There's sometimes when that's easier to believe than at other times. I remember as a kid, when I get a licking, I never got one that I deserved, but I got a few lickings. And, um, and I, I can remember thinking to myself, I, my mother and daddy don't really love me. If they'd love me, why would they beat me, you know, like they do? And I remember thinking, uh, they don't really love me, they just keep me around so they can beat on somebody, you know. I, I, I had that idea. And sometimes it's easier to believe that God loves you than it is at other times, isn't it? And so the Apostle Paul just labors the point in this passage of Scripture because he wants to show us that God loves us because on the basis and the foundation of that love, our hope, our confident assurance does rest. He says there's two ways that we know that God loves us. First, because this love has been exhibited in the world. Now he says in verse 6, I think it is, he says, For God demonstrates His love toward us. It's King James commends. It's a word that has a twofold meaning so that when the writer, when the reader of the Greek New Testament saw that word that's translated demonstrates, he knew it meant two things. It means to establish or to make certain or to prove and it means 
to recommend to the point of appealing to one's heart. And both ideas are found in this text. God proved his love toward you in that Christ died for you. And God recommends his love. He spared not his own son. And there are two ideas that are involved in this marvelous, amazing love of God. First, it's peculiarity. It's totally unlike ours. Now he says sometimes a man might die for a good man. Scarcely would he lay down his life for a righteous man. But God commends his love toward us, demonstrates his love toward us in that while and at the same time we are yet sinners, were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he says in verse 6 that it was at a time when we were without strength. It means to have no moral capacity to do good whatsoever. And Molaise calls that this loathsome impotency. It is at the time when man is hostile to God that he poured out his love to man. Totally unlike us. Totally unlike our love. Now, when you, when you discover that that love was demonstrated, poured out to sinners, it gives you a clue as to the marvelous, amazing love of God. For a sinner is one who is totally opposite of God in character. He's unjust instead of just. He's unrighteous instead of righteous. He's unfaithful instead of faithful. Now notice what that means by way of contrast. In the highest human experience, it should be that God, that the sinner would be objectionable and loathsome to God. Purity should and does hate impurity. The man who has the highest ideas and motives should loathe the man who has ignoble and base motives. I'm not blaming God if he doesn't love me, for I am impure and selfish and sinful. And at the moral fiber of my being, I am undone. It's absolutely inconceivable to me that God would love me. But the glorious good news of the gospel is that he does love sinners. As a matter of fact, Jesus is called the friend of sinners. Now how do I know that he loves me? He just keeps holding up the cross as the proof of it. Notice, it's not demonstrated in the, in the past tense. It demonstrates in the majestic present tense and it means that God just keeps on demonstrating his love to us in the cross. And so we see it every time we turn around. We can't get away from it. Everywhere we look, we see evidence of God's love in the cross. And we're reminded of those harsh hands that arrested him and jostled him and the fist that beat into his blindfolded face and the leather and the leather whip that cut his back to shreds as the fierce crowd screamed for his death. And the heavy cross that he bore that almost broke his back as he carried it to the place of the execution. And the huge spikes that tore into his hands and his feet like red hot pokers. 
and the merciless sun that beat down upon him as he hung between two thieves, and the sponge filled with vinegar, and the burning thirst, and the sword that pierced his side, and the angry mob, and you can almost feel his life ebbing from him as he suffers on that cross between two thieves with, with that swirling sensation in his head and that exhaustion and that perishing thirst, he cried out to the Father. And as we watch him there, we almost cry ourselves, Oh God, let him die. And when he finally dies, we weep because God has demonstrated again and again and again that he loves you. A monk said, tonight I'll preach a sermon on the love of God. Come early. And the people came to the mosque, to the place where he preached. It was still light that was streaming through stained glass windows. When, when the folks came, it was packed out. And so he waited until it was dark. Then he went to the candelabra and took a lighted candle and walked over to the crucifix and held the light up first to the feet of Jesus. He paused for a moment, then he lifted the light to the riven side and waited, and then to the hands that were on the cross, and then to the nailed, into the, the thorn-scarred brow. And when he finished his sermon, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused such pain for me who for him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So peculiar is the love of God. So potential is the love of God. He said, much more you who were justified by his blood, much more shall you be saved by his life. Hear me now. The Christian life is the life of the much more. And he moves from the argument from the greater to the lesser. And he says, if God spared not his own son, there's nothing that he would withhold from you. Now, now watch this. If God has given you the greatest gift, is there a gift he would not give? Why, Jesus said, you who are sinful, who know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall the Father, who is perfect, give good gifts to them that ask of him? If God did not withhold his own Son, is there anything he would withhold? And he gets ready to say in chapter 8, verse 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not freely give us, with him give us all things? Now is there anything that God would not give you if he gave you his son? Do you know that if there was a time, if there is... If there's going to be a time when God, when God would let you down, would, would draw back, would shrink back from His commitment to you, it would have been 2,000 years ago. 
Imagine the father as he looks down on his son in Gethsemane. There's been no suffering like that. As a matter of fact, his heart nearly broke. His, his, his brow sweat drops of blood. And the scripture says that he cried, Abba, it means Daddy. And there was Jesus in the garden saying, Daddy, if it's possible, some of the way, not this cup. If there ever was a time when God was going to shrink back, was going to draw back from you, doing for you, it would have been then. Imagine the father looking down on his son as he carried that cross up to Calvary and those cruel men hanging him on it and hearing him pray, my God, why have you forsaken me? If there ever was a time when God was going to draw back from doing good things for you, it would have been then. You can stake your hope on the love of God. You can rest your assurance and your confidence on Him. He's got too much invested in you. I'm His most prized possession. You look at me and say, well, you're not much of a possession. If you're the most prized possession, he's, He sure doesn't have much. Listen, if you had as much invested in me as He has invested in me, I'd be pretty... I'd pretty be, be pretty valuable to you also. You're his most prized possession. He's got too much invested in you to back off now. How can I know God loves me? Because his love has been exhibited in the world. Secondly, because his love is experienced in our heart. Now I ask, how can I know that God loves me? You say, well here, let me show you. And you open up chapter 5 of Romans and you point me to the cross, just what I've done to you. But there's time, there are times when that's not enough. There are times when I need to feel that God loves me, don't you? There are times when the historical fact of the love of God is not enough for me. Now I know that we cannot live on feelings. I know that better than anybody. You have to live on the fact of God's Word. But there are times when the fact is not enough. I need to feel God's love. And so the Apostle Paul says that this love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit who was given us. It is a love that is experienced in the heart. It's not love that's intellectually apprehended. It's love that is experientially comprehended. It can be experienced in the heart. Now, if you don't feel that God loves you, you can still rest on fact. But if fact is not enough, the love of God can be experienced in the heart. Now, there needs to be two things said about that. First of all, it's origin, and then secondly, it's occasion. Its origin is the Holy Spirit who was given us. He said, this love has been poured out. It's a word that means flash flood. He said, this love has flash flooded my heart through the Holy Spirit who was given me. Now, and really, there's a better illustration, a better picture. It's the picture of one, the Holy Spirit, who, who gets a container. There's a, he, he goes and gets this container, the largest container that you've ever imagined. 
And he goes over, he says, this is the picture, he dips into the heart of God's love and he takes out this container full of love and he comes over and he pours that love into our heart. He just dips into God's heart and gets his love and he comes to our heart and pours that love there. It's, it's immeasurable. It's, it's amazing. It's marvelous. Now, the Holy Spirit is my lifeline to God. And, and, and Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit knows all about me. He even knows how, how to pray for me. And so the Holy Spirit looks into my life and he says, that boy needs some of the love of God. And he goes over and he gets that love in that container and he brings it over to me and pours it out into my heart. That's the origin of that experience love. But what is the occasion? Now I want you to get this because I want to give you something that will be helpful. In, in verse 3 he says, that tribulation works patience or perseverance. The word for tribulation is the picture of, of an instrument that was used on the threshing floor. Sometimes it was a large wooden thing that had spikes on it and they would drag that wooden, heavy wooden object across the, the threshing floor and it would separate the grain from the chaff. Sometimes it was an, a, a, a large iron instrument but it had large spikes on it and it would just drag, they would drag it across the threshing floor and separate the, 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 the seed, the grain from the chaff. And he says, under life's pressures, Life's grinding experiences, tribulations work, perseverance. The word is hupomoni. It's not the capacity to endure life, it's the capacity to conquer. It's not the ability just to grin and bear it, it's the ability to triumph over it. When Beethoven was told that he was going death, he said, I'll take life by the throat. That's hupomone. Someone came to a saint and said, you know, this, this Christian was suffering in life. And they said, you know, life, uh, sufferings fairly cover life, color life, don't they? And the person said, yes, and I propose to choose the color. That's perseverance. Now, pressure, he said, produces perseverance. And perseverance produce character. It's the word that means to refine until all the dross is burned away. Now you see, God is not an arsonist. He's a refiner. And He allows us to come under the tribulations and the pressures of life in order that the character might be refined. And then He says it. Watch this. He says, and then that trouble, that tribulation, that that produces perseverance, that produces character, produces the hope that does not disappoint you. Now watch. There are two kinds of hope in the New Testament. There is the hope that comes because we're justified by faith. We're justified through Jesus Christ. Then there is the hope that comes through the pressures of tribulation. This kind of hope, he says, will never disappoint you. 
Now the people that I know who have had their confidence and their assurance worked out on the anvil of tribulation are the kind of people who have tested God in suffering and found that He never let them down. And that's why when they were in that stormy boat, the disciples went back to the back, shook Jesus until they awakened Him and said, Don't you care that we perish? And Jesus stood up in the boat and calmed the wind and the, and the waves. And then He said, How long is it, gentlemen, Tidwell translation, how long is it until you catch on to what I'm doing, that regardless of what the circumstance of life, I'll always be sufficient. And so as they went through all of the experiences of life that, that were, that were pressure-filled and grinding disappointments that, that hurt them and, and, and brought sorrow to them, they began to catch on that, that God would never let them down. And so that hope was worked out on the anvil of tribulation, this kind of hope that never disappoints. Now what is the meaning of all this? If God loves me, and that love has been exhibited in history and experienced in my life, what does all that mean? It means that I can rest my life on God today in simple faith. George Matheson was a godly man and he, he decided, he felt that God was leading him into a life of Christian ministry, but he had, a loved, he had one he loved that would not accept that for her life. He had two choices. He could renounce his faith, his call, or he could renounce his love. He chose the latter. But that wound in his heart was never healed. And out of that heartache and that disappointment, he wrote the words of that song we sing, O love that will not let me go, referring to the love of God. I rest my weary soul in thee, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dared not ask to hide from thee. I lay in dust life's glories dead, and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. What does it mean that God loves me? It means I can rest my life upon Him forever. And Leon Kilbreth told the story that I'll close with. There was this boy, young man, who was just ideal from the time he was in school until he graduated from college. He was just an ideal boy. Moral, good, just great. And after he graduated from college, a good student, a good athlete, morally pure in every way. Somebody asked him, what is the secret? So many of your friends yielded to peer pressure. What is the secret of your life? He said, well, this is my secret. 
no real secret, he said. When my mother was carrying me in her womb, the doctor called her in one day and she was having some physical problems and he did some x-rays. He called her into his office and said, if you have your child, if you give birth to your child, you will die. We need to abort that baby now or you will die. And she said, what if I give birth to my baby? Will the baby live? Well, yes, no problem, no danger, no threat to the child. But if you give birth, your baby, you'll die. And she said, I have, there's no option, there's no choice. Of course I'll give birth to my child. He called in her husband. He warned, he told him, you, you might ought to persuade her. There's no way she can give birth to this child. But she had made up her mind. At the point of her death, she was going to give life. And she said just before the birth came to be, she called in her husband. She said, you tell my son when he's old enough to understand that I gave my life for him. After he got old enough to understand, one day his dad sat down with him to visit, just to talk. He said, son, you know why your mother died? She gave birth to you, life to you. She gave her life that you might live. Now he said, for the rest of the time up to this point in my life, I have lived with this word in my mind, I must live like my mother desired my life to be because she gave her life for me. Amazing love is the love of God exhibited in the world, demonstrated on the cross. A love that says, if I'll do that for you, Everything I have is available to you. A love that is experienced every day in the midst of tribulation. Like floods of love, God comes to our heart by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I should rest my life on Him forever. And so should you. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that we can base our confident assurance upon the fact of your love, love exhibited and experienced. And Lord, that love demands our very best, love so amazing, so divine, demands our soul, our life, our all. And in the light of that divine love, we come to give you our lives. I pray for each person here this morning. I pray that your love shall draw them to renewed commitments, to salvation's plan, to the renewal of their life. God, we know that that it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Lead us, Lord, 
to repent. And I pray it in the name of Jesus and for His sake. Now look here just a moment. There are two kinds of, three kinds of invitations that we extend. The first is for those of us who have never given our heart and life to Jesus Christ. The first time for salvation. What are you going to do this morning about a God who would hang Himself on a cross for you? Can you turn away from that? Can you reject that? Can you trample underfoot the love of God, His blood? Would you come this morning on the basis of that demonstrating love to give your heart and life to Him? I'm not asking you, to, have you ever joined a church or been baptized? I'm asking you, have you ever trusted Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? Has there ever been a time when you said, Jesus, I trust you and you only. I repent of the life where I've been in control. I trust you. Would you do it today? There may be some who needed to join the church this morning. Place your life here. Or some to rededicate yourself to Christ, to walk, closer walk with God. Renew your commitment to Him. Whatever God leads you to do, we pray you shall right now as we stand to sing. You come.